Good morning, everybody. Um, please take your seats. We're going to start our program. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm Nina Shea. I direct the Center for Religious Freedom here at Hudson. And I want to wish everyone happy holidays. And I also uh, want to draw your attention to the crisis in China against the Uyghur Muslim population there. Um, it is one of the worst human rights and religious persecution situations of our day, in fact, of our age. Um, it is a, a, both a crisis of religious persecution and of human rights violations of epic proportions. And we'll be hearing more about that through the session today. Um, all people should be concerned for China as a rising power aims to make this a model, um, not only for other groups within its borders, but um, is exporting this model. It is of deep concern to me as someone who monitors religious freedom around the world, and I know it is to you here in this room in the audience. And it is my uh, deep privilege to introduce Ambassador at Large for Religious Freedom of the US State Department, Sam Brownback. Uh, he is going to be giving our keynote address in just a moment. Um, I have known Ambassador Brownback for about 25 years when he was in the Senate and we we're working together on other human rights crises, including Sudan, which today is, uh, is actually a source of hope in the world. So um, it, it, um, I'm very pleased um, to see him now in this position as the Religious Freedom Ambassador, uh, someone who has been empowered under this administration and through Congress. Um, and he is really the institutional face of religious freedom as a priority in US foreign policy. His um, ministerials that he has organized and innovated have brought hundreds, in fact, a thousand people from all over the world who are deeply vested in religious freedom. Uh, these are uh, survivors of religious persecution, advocates, world leaders from across the globe. And um, please join me in welcoming Sam Brownback. It's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Nina. I appreciate that greatly. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back at Hudson. Uh, you'd find this interesting, more interesting than most. I was on the phone this morning with the Prime Minister of Sudan, uh, which was not a normal thing for me 20, 25 years ago uh, when we were fighting the Bashir uh, regime. And uh, they were uh, state-sponsoring terrorism that the United States experienced, unfortunately, firsthand. Uh, but I think it does show that if you keep after an issue and you're on the right side, you can win, and you will win. Uh, and that um, uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful. It is one of the sources and the places of great hope in the world uh, today. We hope things continue to move forward in the right direction. I also want to thank Hudson Institute for hosting the Vice President and the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, uh, at different times to speak here in Hudson uh, regarding China. Uh, I think those have been wonderful speeches. I've read, uh, uh, looked at, at both of those, and uh, I think they offer a template uh, on issues of China and U.S. policy uh, towards China. This administration uh, has been really the first uh, in decades uh, to take on China and the repressive regime, uh, and they've done an absolutely, I think, brilliant, uh, tough, uh, good job uh, in confronting uh, China, and I think it's been important that we do that. I'm pleased to join that discussion now, uh, and it's a key priority for this administration. The People's Republic of China, their government, brutal, their brutal campaign of repression currently going on against Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and other Muslims in Xinjiang. Uh, again, my thanks to Hudson Institute and the distinguished experts that are here today for keeping the conversation in Washington going. This administration has recognized that it's important to analyze and respond to these abuses from all angles. So I appreciate the discussion and the insights at today's events. Uh, I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it until it hopefully one day is no longer true. 
China is at war with faith, but it is a war they will not win. In the meantime, while it continues, the Chinese government continues to engage in a high-stakes game of subterfuge, attempting to cloak the truth in misdirection and deception about its true intentions and activities, but we will not be fooled. The Chinese government can refer to inhumane treatment of religious and ethnic minority groups in Xinjiang as war on terror, as countering religious extremism. It can label its internment camps as so-called vocational training centers and even claim that detainees have graduated. But the evidence is clear. Clearly, this is not just a war on faith, but a war on truth and international norms. And we know the facts. Earlier this year, Ambassador Nathan Sales and I co-authored an op-ed plainly stating that the repressive campaign in Xinjiang is not counterterrorism. It's one more chapter in Beijing's long history of oppression, oppressing Tibetan Buddhists, Christians, the Falun Gong, and there are others. Terrorism is a very real threat in many parts of the world, including in the United States and in China. But conflating peaceful religious practices and identity with terrorism is beyond disingenuous. It's unconscionable. Also unconscionable is imposing pervasive high-tech surveillance and the monitoring throughout the region. Now this, unfortunately, I believe is the future of what much oppression is going to look like. I think you're seeing the front wave of it in Xinjiang. They also preventing Muslims from doing their regular daily prayers or forcing them to consume pork, consume pork and alcohol and shave their beards, preventing children from attending mosques or studying the Quran, or removing them from their homes and placing them in orphanages, destroying the Chinese government is destroying mosques, cemeteries, and other religious and cultural heritage sites. And of course, detaining more than one million members of Muslim minority groups in internment camps since April of 2017. In our current day world, in 2019, a million Muslim people in Xinjiang are in internment camps. That's really almost unthinkable in this day and age, and yet it exists right now. These are the abuses that the PRC government is trying to hide and deny. So I believe it was a game changer when the Xinjiang papers and the China cables recently came to light. As Secretary Pompeo has said about it, these reports are consistent with an overwhelming and growing body of evidence that the Chinese Communist Party is committing human rights violations and abuses against individuals in mass detention. And in these papers, you saw the background and the thinking of it. These documents reveal that the CCP is orchestration that is orchestrated, and it, this is not random. It's intentional. Those who may have been inclined to believe the PRC government or who were bullied into believing it can now read these documents and see for themselves the depth and breadth of what's happening in Xinjiang. And if you know anything about China, you also know that the PRC government's campaign of repression is not unique to Xinjiang. In part, that's because the CCP first installed the region's party secretary, Chen Quan Guo, and I want you to remember that name, Chen Quan Guo, in Tibet, where he tested out a massive grid of physical and technological surveillance, cameras, police stations, databases, police and security forces, life in Tibet, including religious life, was forever transformed. Considered a success, Chen took his playbook to Xinjiang, amplifying his tactics on an unfathomable scale. Earlier this week, The Economist magazine noted the parallels between Tibet and Xinjiang and Chen's role in replicating repression. And my fear, and I think of the Hudson Institute as well, is that these sorts of replications of repression are going to continue and increase around the world. They need to be stopped now. And so the document's strength, what we know about these abuses and this administration's ongoing resolve, is to respond to them. 
Importantly, we continue to promote accountability for those who commit human rights abuses around the world. That is why the Department of State has previously uh, designated China as a country of particular concern under the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998 for engaging in or tolerating particularly severe violations of religious freedom. As we all know, such religious freedom violations are hardly the only human right abuse that the PRC government is perpetrating in Xinjiang and elsewhere. When a, but when a country doesn't respect the right to freely practice one's faith and belief, and everything that that entails, we often see other rights significantly imperiled. These include the freedom of association, assembly, speech, and the freedom of movement. In addition to the country of particular concern designation that is specific to religious freedom violations, we've seen a multifaceted U.S. response. The crisis in Xinjiang featured prominently at both ministerials that Nina mentioned, as well as at the President's Global Call for Religious Freedom event at the U.N., the first ever by a head of state to call for the topic of religious freedom at the U.N. General Assembly. These, there was resulting uh, powerful testimony from Uyghur survivors and family members and two consecutive statements of concern underscoring, underscoring the PRC government's escalating repression against members of religious groups in China. I'm going to stop here in just a moment uh, and note as well, last week there was another testimony on Xinjiang on Capitol Hill, and I ran into three young people from Xinjiang who testified Two of them told of family members convicted of seven to nine years and put in jail for seven to nine years for them, the younger family member, out and speaking. So I, God bless the people from Sinjon that are willing to speak out. This comes at a significant cost to them personally and to their families. A number of agencies have executed as well targeted actions. The Department of State imposed visa sanctions on Chinese officials for their role in the campaign of repression in Xinjiang. The Department of Commerce added 28 Chinese governmental and commercial entities to its entity list, which prevents them from buying U.S. products or importing U.S. technology that could be used to repress religious and ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. And the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol issued a withhold release order to ensure that products made by a Chinese company in Xinjiang do not end up in American stores. We welcome the role that a growing number of international actors play in calling out these abuses. We want to see more of this in the months ahead and will continue to encourage stakeholders to take up this mantle. A multilateral response is similarly vital. The United States and four other countries co-hosted a panel discussion on the margins of the UN General Assembly on the human rights crisis in Xinjiang. More than 30 UN member states attended, along with EU representatives, an OIC delegation, and 20 NGOs. Ultimately, it was standing room only. A truly remarkable turnout. Importantly, several Uyghur survivors and family members addressed the room bravely sharing their harrowing stories. They provide an eyewitness testimony. This is factual testimony that they provide. This is no longer allegations. These are eyewitnesses. The United States was among 23 signatories to a joint statement on human rights violations and abuses in Xinjiang delivered at the UN Third Committee in October. I'm also working with a group to launch a priority announced at this year's ministerial. It's called the International Religious Freedom Alliance. Once launched, it will be the first ever international body devoted to freedom of religion or belief, bringing together like-minded countries to confront religious freedom challenges. And this will be the first new international human rights organization in a generation. It's focused, again, just on the issues of international religious freedom. We hope to have that stood up and launched the first part of this next year. I'm excited by this opportunity. I'm currently reaching out to a number of countries to bring them on board. As I close, I want to humanize the repression in Xinjiang and elsewhere in China. These are innocent civilians peacefully practicing their faith as their conscience leads. 
dreaming of prosperity and happiness for themselves and for their children. They do not need their way of thinking reprogrammed. They do not need their government controlling and monitoring every aspect of their lives. They need, they deserve freedom. Freedom of religion to practice their faith peacefully as they see fit. That's what I and others in this administration are working towards. I want to say thank you again to the Hudson Institute for hosting this discussion today and inviting me and for previously hosting the Vice President and for hosting the Secretary of State to discuss human rights abuses in China. The expertise you bring to the discussion is tremendously helpful to this administration continues to employ, that we continue to employ, a variety of tools as we call on People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party, to immediately release all those arbitrarily detained and to end its draconian policies that for more than two years have terrorized its religious and ethnic minority groups in Xinjiang. We will continue to push back on China's war on faith, and I hope you will continue to join us in that endeavor. Thank you very much. God bless you all. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador Brownback and Nina, for introducing. And thank you to all of you and to our C-SPAN viewers for being with, here, being with us here today at Hudson for this afternoon's panel discussion on Xinjiang and US policy response. The Institute launched this program of seminars about Xinjiang in early 2017 to help challenge, I think, what can be best described as the US's post-9-11 political complacency over what the Chinese Communist Party <coughs> has claimed is its own war on terrorism in the vast northwestern territory of the PRC empire known as Xinjiang. That US reappraisal was urgently needed then, and in fact, it's been long overdue. For decades, the Uyghur Muslim people have suffered from institutionalized repression and discrimination in their own homeland, which they call East Turkestan. In August of 2016, the installation of Chen Chuanguo as the new party boss in Xinjiang made clear that Beijing would be ramping up its efforts to subjugate the Uyghur and other peoples of East Turkestan. Secretary Chen was already known for his harsh policies in Tibet, and under his command over the last three years, Xinjiang has been transformed in the, into the most heavily surveilled and oppressive garrison states that the world has arguably ever seen. The Communist Party has since gone to extraordinary lengths to suppress information and propagandize about what it is doing in Xinjiang, both inside China and around the world, including here in the United States. I should say back in September of 2018, Rushan Abbas, who's here with us today, She's a longtime Uyghur human rights activist and also an American citizen, spoke here on a panel at Hudson Institute. Six days later, two of Rushan's family members in Xinjiang, her aunt and her sister, Gulshan Abbas, vanished. Gulshan's, Gulshan's whereabouts are still unknown today. What we do know, thanks to the vital work of three of our panelists and countless others, many of whom have risked their lives, is that upwards of one million Uyghurs over 10% of the population, has been forced into mass internment camps for ideological re-education. The PRC's clear intent in its war on Uyghurs fits the very original definition of decimation. China's communist rulers have dismissed reports about the internment camps and, and the abuses inside them as fake news spread by Western journalists and think tanks. They have instead tried and succeeded, I would say, at persuading a large part of the world till now, that the camps are, in fact, vocational training centers, which Uyghurs voluntarily attend. Last month, the leak of classified party documents obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists revealed 
that the party's story about Xinjiang, like so much else, is a lie. The China cables expose in chilling detail how the party has planned and implemented the largest scale persecution of a distinct ethnic religious group since the end of World War II. In short, the papers provide us a glimpse into the party's blueprint for the destruction of a people. Here with us today to discuss all this and what it should mean for the US policy are three leading US-based experts. I'm happy to welcome back uh, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, who's now with Axios. And anybody who reads anything about China these days knows her byline, both from Axios, from the International Consortium for <laughs> Investigative Journalism, and also from the Daily Beast and Foreign Policy. Second, we'll have Dr. Adrian Zenz, who's now a senior fellow at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Adrian's research, as many of you know, has been key in establishing the existence of the camps in the first place and in documenting the buildup of the PRC police state. And third, we will hear from Nuri Turkle, who's a lawyer and the board chair of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, an indispensable organization that he founded in 2003. Nori, I wanted to add, was born in a communist re-education camp in Kashgar at the height of the Cultural Revolution. It's important to keep that in mind. After we hear from our speakers, we will have a Q&A period this afternoon. Uh, we're going to be conducting that a little bit differently today. All of you are going to be receiving pieces of paper and pencils uh, to please write on them concise questions. And we'll be collecting them about halfway through this panel this morning so that we can address them um, when we have time for questions at the end. Thank you again. With that, we'll start with Bethany. Thanks. Thank you so much for that introduction, Eric. And thank you again to Hudson Institute for hosting uh, yet another panel on, on this important issue. I served as ICIJ's lead reporter for the China Cables Project alongside 75 journalists around the world. Uh, about three months ago, I was handed a, a stack of documents that looked like this. Uh, and said, here, you have two months. And when I first saw them, I thought, this is very important. But the more I looked into them, the more I realized how truly groundbreaking and important they were. I will uh, briefly talk about each set of documents and then go into the, the key takeaways from each one. Uh, so first, we have uh, what we call a telegram, or more colloquially, the operating manual for the camps. That was disseminated in November of 2017 by Zhu Hai who is Chen Xuanguo's right-hand man. We also have a set of classified intelligence briefings, uh, known as bulletins, that detail for the very first time very detailed inside looks at the operations of the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, or IJOP, which is a, a mass uh, data collection and uh, artificial intelligence-powered predictive policing platform that is behind much of the very advanced police state that we see in Xinjiang. And thirdly, we have a Uyghur language court document that shows the, the tragedy of what happened to one individual man who was sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, simply for extorting fellow uh, Muslims to <coughs> not watch pornography and to pray regularly. So first, the telegram, the operations manual for the camps. This is, for the first time, in the Chinese government's own words, an admission that the camps are not voluntary, but are, in fact, highly securitized prison-like detention centers. In their own words, the first section, uh, which talks about security, urges camp <clears throat> personnel to prevent escapes, to prevent abnormal deaths. Those two phrases and the, the instructions that are given to carry those out uh, prove that the Chinese communist, uh, the Chinese communist government's uh, speaking points about the camps are lies. Um, it is not normal for boarding schools or vocational, educa you know, vocational education centers to, uh, to prevent the escapes of their students, to put up high walls to, command, to demand absolute secrecy of the personnel, to put up barbed wire and guards. Yet all these things are explicitly spelled out in this document. The uh, um, 
command to prevent abnormal deaths is even more chilling. What it shows is that Zhu Haiwen and the entire party state in Xinjiang knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that by putting these people in these facilities, they were putting their lives at grave risk. Now, it is a very bare bones, minimal degree of good that the command is to prevent abnormal deaths and not to cause abnormal deaths. What that indicates to me is that at least as of November 2017, these were not at least intended to be mass murder camps. However, it is clear beyond a shadow of a doubt in the Chinese government's own words that the, the conditions are dire and that the, the security level and the lack of oversight in these camps is deadly or potentially deadly. A few other highlights, or uh, highlight is not the correct word, um, more chilling statements from these uh, documents is the use of a classification and point system inside the camps that is sort of a, a miniature version of perhaps the social credit system. So um, detainees are awarded or docked points based on their behavior, and that uh, part of those points are awarded based on test scores, um, and those points are used in part to determine when detainees are able to release this to be released. This, this could be stated as perhaps the world's most high-stakes testing um, when it determines your freedom or perhaps even your life, the life of your family members. And uh, I will highlight once again the, the final one of the final commands in the, in the telegram is to maintain strict secrecy. This is very significant because it seems that the Chinese government has settled as their current talking point regarding the camps on the efficacy of these camps as being positive, um, a positive way to create a peaceful, stable, and prosperous Xinjiang. This is a good counterterrorism policy, counterterrorism policy, that they are proud of it, and that other countries should emulate it. However, as of November 2017, they were ashamed of it, and they knew that it would be condemned by the international community if it was made public, which is why they had special directions about how to keep these camps a secret. I will move on now to, briefly to the bulletins, to IJOP. What you have here are the internal workings of how police officers on the, on the local levels in Xinjiang were communicating and even receiving orders from a uh, artificial intelligence-powered pre-crime kind of policing system known as IJOP. Uh, one part of this, there's one directive that I, I sat with for, for literally hours because I found it so shocking. In the period of one week, IJOP, which is again some set of algorithms, right, spit out the names of more than 24,000 people and sent those names to local police departments. In the period of one week, more than 15,000 of them were detained and put into camps based on some unknown set of algorithms. This, you know, this system was determining that these people were suspicious, these people were being rounded up and put into camps based on some computer's designation of them. It is a total violation of human rights. This is not effective policing. Um, you know, it is, without exaggeration, uh, a real-life manifestation of the, mo the movie Minority Report. And uh, there, you know, there was no question. So the rest of that particular bulletin dove, delved into issues regarding this mass, you know, um, detention in one week of more than 15,000 people. And the issues were not, how do we know they're really guilty? How do we know they were actually going to do something bad? No. The, is the issues that were raised were, why weren't we able to detain even more of those people? There were you know, almost 9,000 people who escaped. Why weren't we able to detain them? So you get an image of this machine that has been set in motion that uh, in you know, a similar kind of industrialized, bureaucratic, highly technical way has enabled, as we saw in World War II, the separation between the, the, the morality and the moral obligation of individuals and the, and the actual command. So the police officers aren't having to make decisions. They're removed from that. They're just, follow, they're just following their orders. And it makes you know, uh, human rights violations on a massive scale much more possible for the human beings who have been tasked with carrying them out. And I will leave it at that. Fantastic.
Real quick before we go to Adrian, do you have a sense of what the Chinese people themselves know about the China cables and about the camps in Xinjiang? I will say that the Chinese government uh, in May denied me a visa to go to China. Because of that, I have not been able to speak on the ground with Chinese people themselves. However, my understanding uh, from reading many reports and having, um, you know, being able to read Chinese social media, which is obviously highly censored, et cetera, uh, and from speaking with people who are on the ground, is that most Chinese people have no idea of what is going on in Xinjiang. Uh, certainly that was true one year ago, that they had no sense that there was any kind of regime of surveillance or mass detention there. Uh, now, because the Chinese government has made, has come out with a, an official line of propaganda, uh, some Chinese people are aware that there are perhaps some you know, facilities, some vocational education training centers, but they don't have any idea. Uh, I, I did, in fact, I have spoken... Um, I've had phone calls with people in China who have tried to spread the word. And their friends and their family members do not believe them because it seems unbelievable. On top of that, I will just very quickly add that there is a deep-seated um, prejudice and a sense of uh, a regularly practiced discrimination that Han Chinese, the majority, uh, have, have long practiced against Uyghurs. There are these prejudices and just, you know, stereotypes of Uyghurs being backwards, being dirty, being criminals. Uh, this is not true, of course. However, th there is no force to push back against that, and so Han Chinese are, um, have a predilection to think that perhaps Uyghurs deserve whatever was coming to them. Thank you. Adrian. Thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege to be invited for the first time at the Hudson Institute. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here and to give you a very short presentation titled Internment, Intergenerational Separation, and Involuntary Labor in Xinjiang. The attempt here that I'm going to make is to string together <coughs> and tie together the three unprecedented aspects of Beijing's internment campaign in Xinjiang and to look at the long-term implications. The first is internment for re-education, which we all know about and just heard about. The second is intergenerational separation of parents and children, which is a long-term plan. And the third is coercive labor, which is also part of the, the long-term scheme. <coughs> internment, besides the China cables and the Xinjiang papers, which uh, gave the overall idea of the internment strategy. Um, more localized information gives us some very specific insight into how internment works, but also what it does. What is really the purpose of the internment for re-education? Interestingly, the available data shows, and this is published in my paper that came out on November 24th, at the same time as the China Cables leak, that the internment campaign for re-education has clearly targeted influencers in society. We already know about academics, um, party members, uh, musicians, artists, and intellectuals being targeted. On the ground, <coughs> it's really household heads, typically males, especially ages 30 to 59, with a higher representation uh, than uh, they are represented in the overall population. In minority villages, certain villages, there has been internment shares of up to 50% for household heads, meaning every other household head is taken into internment. For sons, it's 20%. Again, sons, males, are in Uyghur culture more influential. Wives and daughters, only 3 to 4%. Yeah. Total internment shares in select Uyghur regions in Yakan County range between 84 to 28.4%, a wide range, <coughs> a massive share, underlining what we had been surmising and uh, suspecting and thinking and believing. We have here in internment a clear strategy of a long-term coercive change of minority societies. So even though parts of the internment are winding down, um, and uh, as China itself says, uh, some persons are being shifted out of internment to the next phase, 
which they call release. Um, there's a long-term plan behind it. It's important to keep in mind the long-term plan behind internment and who they have targeted, who they have been breaking, because re-education is really a breaking of people on the inside and trying to change them forever, if that should be possible to break the human soul. The second aspect I have to go very briefly here is intergenerational separation, a massive increase in the government's capacity and ability to uh, shelter children, minority children, uh, full-time in boarding facilities from young ages. And the third one is involuntary labor. This particular um, spreadsheet entry showing uh, the construction notice for 16 factory blocks on the grounds of a vocational internment camp um, over 30,000 square meters, approximately 300,000 or 290,000 square feet. These factories, of course, come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. They might be inside internment camp compounds. They might be next to them in, fact, in uh, industrial parks. They might be in completely different locations. But the interesting aspect here, again, is how involuntary labor is a tool of coercive social reengineering, including through intergenerational separation. One example touted by state propaganda is satellite factories who have nurseries for even infants. And in this particular example, a mother of three young children, mm, the youngest only 13 months old, was put to full-time labor, and her kids are being taken care of in the caretaking system, which starts at infancy. Conclusion. The next step for us in the West, I believe, is to move into the divestment from China's business of oppression in Xinjiang. I give one particular example. H&M, well-known garment maker, looked into their supply chains and decided to continue to procure yarn from Huafu Fashion Corporation, a well-known Chinese uh, large textile maker who supplies H&M and uh, several other Western companies. But then they said, okay, we don't want your yarn from yarn mills located in Xinjiang because they know, we know there might be some kind of problem. I would like to just very briefly, this is a very complex uh, topic that would require an in-depth uh, presentation of its own, but due to shortage of time, I just want to highlight through the mutual pairing assistance, flows of involuntary labor are not limited to Xinjiang. Government reports state that one county in Xinjiang alone sent over 100 rural minority surplus laborers to Hafu's factories in Anhui province in eastern China. 2017, Hafu itself sent 2,000 poor persons from Xinjiang's minority regions to work and receive training in eastern factories, um, which is a very complex thing, right? Um, Mutual pairing assistance facilitates increasingly mandatory transfers, state-planned state and scheduled transfers of minority laborers to the 19 paired cities and provinces in East China. <coughs> Therefore, foreign companies must divest supply chains not only from Xinjiang, but also from Chinese companies with significant operations in Xinjiang. With that note, I conclude. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Did you... Thank you, Adrian. Uh, Nori. Thank you, Eric. I'd like to begin by thanking the Hudson Institute for organizing this terrific panel. I believe this is the fourth time uh, that the Hudson Institute organized a public event to shine a light on the ongoing crisis. Uh, it is a real honor to be up here with Adrian and Bethany. Uh, they are heroes to me and many others who care about human rights. My remarks will focus on three key issues related to the recent leaks to the New York Times and ICIJ. The first, uh, did we learn anything new about the nature and scope of the internment camps in the Uyghur region? The second, what is party leadership signaling about its ambition at home and abroad? And finally, what has the international response been since the leaks? The trove of government documents offers an unprecedented look inside China's highly organized, systematic, targeted repression of the Uyghurs and other Turkic people, peoples. In one speech, uh, Chinese Communist Party General Secretary Xi Jinping gives orders to use organs of dictatorship and show absolute no mercy. To the Communist Party's 
to the Communist Party. Uyghurs are different, and being different is bad. Therefore, forced transformation is absolutely necessary. The Chinese government does not publicly admit this, but its leaders clearly see both Uyghur, Uyghur identity and religion as inherently disloyal. As such, a potential threat to the state security and Communist Party's continued rule. So what is the significance of leaked documents? Here are my five takeaways. First, the orders come from the, the very top. Out of 403 pages in the New York Times leak, 96 pages are internal speeches by Xi Jinping himself. Interestingly enough, the papers also show that there was resistance to the policies from lower ranks within the party. There are 44 pages of material documenting internal investigations and punishment of local officials who did not carry out the detention with sufficient zeal. It is breathtaking and illuminating to see the level of fear, not just in the Uyghur population, but also among officials who carry out, who have to carry out the atrocities. <clears throat> the second, a party insider took a tremendous risk in leaking these documents. The whistleblower specifically told the New York Times that they hoped that Xi Jinping would not escape culpability for mass detention. Just two days ago, new reporting documented an intense investigation and tightening of information since the leak. Abduveli Ayub, a Uyghur linguist in exile, and his wife's entire family were taken away. <clears throat> Just days after the New York Times piece was published, he said that family had no connection to the leaks. The third, the leak is hard evidence of the Chinese government's intentions. Uyghurs have been telling the world about their experience for more than two years, but their stories were met with skepticism in some cases. Now we have proof of China's intent on systematic punishment and indoctrination. And also the papers prove that the all-out assault on the entire population is an explicit order. Xinjiang Party Secretary Chen Zhuanggo says, round up everyone who should be rounded up. This is a plan for wholesale and mass crimes. The papers also document a pattern of dehumanization, a well-known precursor for crimes against humanity and genocide. Xi Jinping defines all normal, everyday expression of Muslim identity as extremism, which he likens to thought viruses and a contagion. So basically what they are saying is that the Uyghur population has this disease that requires cure from a periodic painful treatment through intervention. Fourth, the Chinese government methodically tried to hide what it was doing from the Uyghur, Uyghurs in the region. The government knew that the Uyghurs would be horrified and desperate to find their missing or detained relatives. So the government prepared a script and made sure that students knew their missing family members would face even, even worse torture and misery if they were to complain. The government also tried to hide what it was doing from the world because it knew that the world would be horrified to find out what was happening. As early as May 2014, Xi Jinping anticipated international criticism and told officials to ignore it. He said, don't be afraid if hostile forces complain or if hostile forces malign the image of Xinjiang. Fifth and finally, the documents use the word jirong, meaning concentration, showing that the Communist Party intended to detain individuals for the purposes of collective punishment, transformation, because of their race, ethnicity, religious practices, and political beliefs. This makes it reasonable and appropriate for us to use the term concentration camps. So what has the international response has been? Sadly, not much. The main reason is that China has been successful in buying silence through diplomatic pressure, economic incentives, and coercive methods. Governments, businesses, and international organizations fear the consequences of annoying the Communist Party. Last week, Turkish, uh, the Turkish foreign minister told the parliament that his government won't stay silent on the Uyghur issue. The United Kingdom, Germany, the EU, and Australia have spoken out requesting unfettered access to the camps. And that's pretty much about it. No country has announced sanctions. No country has recalled an ambassador. No country has canceled a trip or tabled a resolution at the UN. In this horribly inadequate response, 
the United States has been most vocal country in, on the Uyghur crisis. Many officials, from the vice president to the director of national intelligence to the UN ambassador, have expressed concerns or condemnation. Secretary Pompeo alone has made about 20 public statements, including comments to the press about the Uyghur crisis just in the last five months. Just yesterday, Secretary Pompeo came out in support of a German soccer star, Mesut Özil, for his criticism of China's treatment of Uyghurs. He said that Beijing can censor Mr. Özil and his team's soccer game, but cannot hide human rights violations. On December 3rd, the House of Representatives passed a Uyghur human rights bill by a vote of 407 to 1. During the floor debate, members cited leaked documents as evidence of persecution on a scale not seen since the Holocaust, to quote Congressman Christmas of New Jersey. The Uyghur bill has a decent chance of becoming law because of its bipartisan support. It, has also, it also has a strong support in the Senate that passed a slightly different bill by unanimous consent in September. In conclusion, I'd like to point that the leaks give us a trove of evidence that sh should be on the desk of policymakers, legislators, and prosecutors for collective and individual responses to the crisis. These documents should compel skeptics, apologists, to get on the right side of the history. This is not only about the Uyghurs or the nature of the Communist Party in China. It is about who we are as free people and civilization. Nobody can say we did not know. What more will it take for governments and companies to end business as usual with China? Will it take mass killing for the world to take a decisive action when it's too late? The responsibility to respond cannot be wished away or addressed with a few words of concern as in the past. This is a genocidal intent in black and white on our watch. Thank you, Thank you Nori. Uh, Adrian, while I try to digest some of these questions, um, I know you've done some recent analysis about the actual infrastructure behind the camps. and. How many camps are we talking about today, in your so, assessment? <clears throat> the, the classified document about the management of the camps mandates the establishment of an administrative infrastructure of vocational training center management in every county administrative <coughs> unit of, of Xinjiang, regardless whether Uyghur, minority, or Han majority. And, um, Based on all kinds of other, uh, other evidence, I would uphold my first estimate from 2018, for which we now have more data points, that on average, at least every township in Xinjiang has some extrajudicial internment facility, um, be it a education through transformation <coughs> camp or a vocational training education center, and in some cases, we have evidence that uh, townships have at least both of them. And I would add the regular detention centers on top of that as institutions of extrajudicial internment, giving us a rough count of 1,300 plus. 1,300 plus. Yes. And that does not include prisons, because those are part of the formal um, uh, criminal system. These are, these are only institutions of extrajudicial internment where people are put without a formal court proceedings or a means of appeal. Thank you. Uh, a question, I think, for Bethany. Uh, what do you think about the similarity of the crackdown against Falun Gong and Uyghurs? Has CCP been perfecting their tactics in their continued persecution of minority groups? I think that the U.S. and other governments have made... Uh, and not just governments, but analysts and journalists have made a pretty significant mistake in um, mostly ignoring what has happened in the past 20 years to the Falun Gong and also to Tibetans, both in Tibet and outside of Tibet. Uh, what, what you saw uh, were some early indications and, and early patterns and practices that the Chinese Communist Party used to suppress entire people or religious groups. Um, and by, by ignoring that, uh, we ignored valuable information about the workings and the thinking of the Communist Party. And we also kind of essentially gave them a green light 
saying, oh, we don't care that much what happens to small groups or minority groups. Um, there are some similarities uh, uh, to what happened to the Falun Gong, um, but what, what you did not see with the Falun Gong in China were the mass construction of you know, camps in this way. Um, it's, so there, there are some differences. Thank you. Uh, question for perhaps all of you, because I know all of you have experienced this. Any advice for countering Chinese pro-regime trolls on social media who seek to deny the facts about the internment camps, <clears throat> or at least cloud the issue and model it? Oh, I was just tweeting about that yesterday, yeah. literally. Um, I have seen a, a remarkable uptick in the number of accounts, of Twitter accounts, who, I mean, now every time I post about Xinjiang, which is all the time, I, it's just most of the responses are by all these different Twitter accounts that are denying that they exist or doing, you know, whataboutism with the United States or, or things like that. I don't think that that can be dealt with uh, on any kind of individual level. What needs to happen is that Twitter and Facebook as well need to uh, continually do what they announced that they did a, a number of months ago, which is to track and shut down these accounts and to be public about it and to make announcements every time they do that. That's really uh, the only effective way to counter this kind of obvious disinformation campaign. I think Twitter's already having some success. I see a, a noticeable, at least, for myself. Maybe it's different for us, but uh, maybe they get onto you late. But uh, uh, they latched onto me, starting, interestingly, with a parent-child separation um, article in July. I think that, that hit a particular nerve. And um, I think Twitter's been very successful in actually deleting, eliminating. I get um, every week, no, yes, every week I lose about 60 or more followers. Um, of course, I gain many more. But, mm -hmm. And at least two-thirds of them are, are temporarily uh, are closed down by Twitter. Yeah. And um, I think they're very easy to discern. They have a limited number of followers. They, they don't use real um, uh, IDs. They often copy and paste the same thing. Like if you search for Xinjiang and Twitter, uh, linear in time, uh, you, you spot them in no time. And I think, um, I think these... Um, Twitter and others are getting much better in targeting these bots with automated scripts, which really is, shouldn't be that difficult. Can I make a, please? Um, two additional thoughts. One is uh, be mindful about the Chinese government's effective uh, disinformation campaign. When you go onto Facebook or Twitter, anytime when somebody publishes something, they just unleash uh, whataboutism and uh, a counterterrorism claim. Uh, even just last Friday, uh, when this soccer player that I referenced in my speech uh, uh, tweeted out a very powerful message, he had been trashed left and right all over the place. He has 25 million followers on the Twitter. <laughs> so that's one thing to be mindful. And the second, I think tech companies have responsibilities. They should find a way to filter out uh, messages uh, uh, helping the Chinese to disseminate uh, misinformation. Uh, for Nori, um, how do you evaluate President Trump's policy toward CCP on human rights issues? And an add-on question is, the Uyghur Human Rights Bill, what are your hopes and concerns about that and its success in the Senate? Um, I get this question quite often. Um, I've learned to pay attention to what Trump administration does than uh, what President Trump says in public. The, uh, the records are very clear. As I pointed out, Secretary of State mentioned Uyghur issue in public, major speeches and media interviews at least 20 times in the last five months. So everyone from the uh, uh, senior leadership level, uh, including Sam Brombeck that we saw today and hear powerful messages, have been speaking out in unprecedented level. So I, I, don't, I don't focus too much about what President Trump uh, says would do uh, on, his, on his capacity. On the Uyghur bill, uh, the United States Congress has been extremely supportive in the last uh, two years, um, specifically under the leadership of Senator Rubio and Christ uh, Representative Christopher Smith. Uh, the bill that has been considered uh, currently has a pretty good chance because uh, as you look at the record uh, sponsorship and the, the enthusiasm, the uh, genuine interest to get this bill passed, uh, it's just a matter of time. 
Uh, I think the United States Congress should have more than one bill. Uh, there should be other bills covering the other issues, uh, including the forced labor. So um, if you wanted to help the Uyghur bill to pass, I call the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to ask them to put this bill on uh, voting. Um, I had mentioned what I believe to be the political complacency about China's war on terrorism after 9-11 at the beginning, but my question I think for all of you, or this question for all of you is, why is the world not recognizing this as a genocide? Also, why is the world ignoring the fact that repression is a result of China's occupation of East Turkestan and its systemic colonization of that region? Adrian? Okay, I get started. <clears throat> the problem is um, what China is doing in Xinjiang is, is in some ways very sophisticated. Um, not a lot of blood is shed, although some for sure. Well, I mean, a lot more than should, but um, the world has yet to truly and fully define uh, genocide in the, in the form of the extinction, not just of physical lives, but also of identities. Uh, there are some help terminologies, such as cultural genocide, etc. Some other terms, like ethnic cleansing, that are quite difficult to use because they can refer to huge population transfers, to mass killing, or to other things, to a whole range of inconsistent things. And I think um, it's high time. It, it's really the, the job of multilateral institutions, such as the United Nations and others, to really take this seriously and to come up with clear definitions and terms and um, lists, and then to, uh, to apply them, to match them, and to also uh, follow up, uh, to keep track with what's going on in the world. If there's new forms of atrocities that are new mass attacks on identity and humanity, the multilateral community and these institutions, they have to keep on top of this and not just be a red tape bureaucracy that sort of trails behind by 10 to 20 years. I think it has also um, it has something to do with um, people not knowing actually what is happening to the Uyghurs in, in a general sense, um, in general public. And also, I think there's a, a lack of leadership um, in various capitals uh, to take up this cause. Um, at the height of the Nazi Germany, uh, they were holding about 700,000 people. So compared to that number, uh, to what is happening to the Uyghurs, it is, it is bone chilling. And yet it has not uh, driven any uh, necessary attention. Uh, legal scholars should look at the uh, actual uh, definition and the, uh, the, the thought, the thinking, and the practice of the Chinese government. And, and, and drawing that conclusion is not that difficult. So uh, we're looking for some leader uh, to take up this cause. And the, uh, as I pointed out, what we have is evidence. Um, the, the method is clear. The thought process is clear. Uh, formulation of these policies and implementation is pretty clear. Uh, I think this is, the, this is a serious crime uh, that has been uh, substantiated with the recent leaks that provided hard evidence. I'd like to add a couple points to that that, that highlight the there's two different, I would say, systemic causes for the lack of government reaction uh, to, to China's campaign of cultural <laughs> genocide. First of all, is that, the Chinese, uh, is that China itself has, a, has massive economic might, and the Chinese Communist Party has spent the last 15 years, and especially the last perhaps 10 years, um, waging explicit campaigns to turn that economic power into political power and into geopolitical power. Uh, the, the most obvious manifestation of this is Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy initiative, the Belt and Road, which uh, they present as an economic initiative, but it is in fact, more importantly, a, a heavily geopolitical initiative to make many governments around the world economically dependent on China than to turn that leverage into political leverage. And that has been, uh, China has leveraged that in this specific case. Um, the, the question has frequently been asked, why are the governments of Muslim-majority countries not speaking out about this? It's not because they hate their own people. It's because those uh, countries in particular are 
particularly dependent upon China for infrastructure investment, for trade, for loans, et cetera. So this is, I would say, perhaps the most important difference between this particular campaign of cultural genocide and, say, uh, you know, Myanmar's, in which they um, actually did kill at least one number I've seen is 24,000 people, and uh, hundreds of thousands were forced to leave their homes. It was easy for many governments to condemn that because no one looks to Myanmar as a political model, and no one, basically, no one is economically dependent on it. So there's there's that level. Another thing is not has not very much to do with China itself and has much more to do with Islamic terrorism. I, I believe that Uyghurs are, uh, in a way, a, a victim of Islamic terrorism because what uh, you know, Islamic extremist groups who I consider to be extraordinary, extraordinarily selfish in addition to being violent, what they have done in, in part, what they have done is to cast aspersions over the entire Islamic religion, which is wrong, which is entirely wrong. And if you look at what Xi Jinping said in some of his speeches, he, in his mind, at least in part, views this as counterterrorism. That is, that is deeply wrong because that is not a problem. That is not a, a, a problem in Uyghur society, particularly. That's not what this is. But that is what he has, in his private speeches, presented it as. So what I'm saying is that one reason that many Chinese people hold deeply Islamophobic sentiments towards Uyghurs, and one reason that many countries in the world, and, and just generally populations in the world, have been less inclined to leap to the defense of Muslims, is because of the deeply harmful things that Islamic extremists in the world have done. Uh, Nori, this is a good question for you as a lawyer from our audience. Um, a certain percentage of people in the camps have already been sentenced with heavy imprisonment, like my nephew and my brother-in-law. Uh, now my brother is facing a court trial. Therefore, should the U.S. government, or for that matter, other international uh, legal entities, highlight this issue or not? And if so, um, what are the options? So I'd like to note that it's an important question. Um, the Chinese government is, has been even violating its own counterterrorism law, if, if their claim holds any water. Um, and, and two, uh, the UN should, should look into this, because I get this kind of question quite uh, regularly. Uh, sadly, the UN General, Secretary General has not even publicly spoken out. Even the UN Charter specifically mandates protection of human rights. So I, I, don't, I, I don't believe that the Chinese government will provide any uh, mechanism or channels for those detained uh, Uyghurs to, uh, to have a legal representation, as noted at the UN third panel in August 2018. This, the Chinese has created no rights zone, no nothing, no right to, uh, no access to lawyers, courts, uh, or even family members. So it is, it is something that uh, the policymakers around the world, um, uh, particularly the UN, should look at addressing. I don't think there's anything that can be done in, in, uh, in, on, in China. Of course, no law rises above the power of the party. Yeah. Okay. Uh, would any of you like to have some final concluding thoughts? Yes, I think um, it's clearly is time <coughs> to move the focus, not the effort, but the focus away from questions about evidence, which we now have abundantly of what exactly is going on, and to really shine the spotlight on the international, communi international community, uh, on national governments, including this one here, on unions or leagues of nations, be it NATO, but especially the United Nations, uh, be it leagues within the Islamic world. And this is not something I'm an expert on or can advise on, but I think um, it's deeply frustrating to see the extent to which what's going on in Xinjiang is testing the true conscience of the world. Yes. And it's deeply frustrating to see the choices that these leaders have been making in, oftentimes, in not making certain choices. And I think this is something that should trouble us deeply. 
And anybody who speaks or claims to care about human rights should pause and think what, what is going on in the global community. Uh, anybody asking for more evidence uh, has no further excuse at this point in time. And I think that should be squarely pointed out. Um, <clears throat> it is not only disappointing, but disheartening that uh, some Muslim countries um, have been on the side of the Chinese government, uh, where their religion has been likened to mental illness. And there's an evidence now that they have been wholesale, wholesale attack on uh, Uyghur Islam. The, uh, and then two, <coughs> this needs to be understood that the United States government did not create this problem. Um, the Chinese have been very effective uh, creating this false division for pro-camp against camp situation, as you have noticed in the uh, joint letters published in July. Uh, those 50-some countries need to understand that this is not uh, helping the Uyghurs who are speaking up. It's in the interest of their religious belief. Um, it's a matter of conscience. So I call on those countries to get on the right side of the history. Thank you. Uh, with that, uh, thank you uh, particularly to our panelists. Thank you all for being here. Um, we'll do more of this, and I want to have all of you back. And thank you to all of you, again, also to C-SPAN for joining us today. Uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Um, uh, thank you.